Welcome to the 272nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Okay, I'm going to start again. I seem to have had a slight technical difficulty here at the at the start. And um, Tope, we'll see you back in just a minute. I'm just going to put you in the room. We'll bring you back. Sorry about that, everyone. Let me start again on that. It's the first time I've had that issue in my new setting here at KAIST. Let me start again. Welcome to the 272nd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Tope Fodoron for a discussion of the history and myths related to vaccine hesitancy among Black Americans. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests of future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 5th, 2021, there are 3,227,968 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 is reported now as 578,500 lives lost. In India, the report is 226,169 deaths from COVID-19. That's up from 222,408 deaths reported yesterday. In South Korea, 1,847 people have died from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is James Williams, gay activist in India, dies at 35. This was written by Catherine Q. Seeley and appeared in the New York Times, Those We've Lost section, May 4th, 2021. James Williams was a gay man who grew up in a conservative and religious milieu in Alabama where homophobia was rampant. 
But over time, he saw the United States move toward greater tolerance, which he attributed partly to non-threatening television shows like Will and Grace, the long-running sitcom with an openly gay lead character. While on vacation in India in 2017, he met Ayush Thakur and moved to India to live with him. Asex had been decriminalized there only in 2018, and Mr. Williams saw that persecution persisted. He thought that if Indian television shows were modeled on Will and Grace, they could bring gay people into Indian living rooms and help change hearts and minds. So he spent his days meeting with producers and others trying to get such shows off the ground. Then last year, the coronavirus pandemic hit and halted his efforts. In recent weeks, an explosion of cases has put India under siege, sapping medical systems, overwhelming crematories, and leaving some people to die in line outside hospitals. Mr. Williams tested positive for COVID-19 on April 24th and joined the desperate scramble for a hospital bed and oxygen. He eventually found both, his brother John said, but to no avail. He died on April 28th in a hospital in the Delhi region. He was 35. James Robert Williams was born on June 30th, 1985 in Florence in northwest Alabama and grew up in nearby St. Florian. His mother, Kay Carter Williams, was a school teacher. His father, Paul Kenneth Williams, a former Marine who served in the Vietnam War, was an IRS agent. James's mother died in a car accident in 1992, and his father committed suicide in 1995. Jim, 9, and John, 11, went to live with their father's sister, Sharon Alexander, a volunteer for nonprofits, and her husband, Bill Alexander, a financial executive in East Amherst, New York, near Buffalo. In addition to his brother and Mr. Thakur, Mr. Williams is survived by the Alexanders and their two daughters and Jessica Alexander and their son, Doug. Williams majored in English at Columbia University. He was a campus character, a big, tall, funny guy who always had a good story to tell, Laura Kleinbaum, a former classmate and close friend, said in a phone interview. A talented writer, he loved composing observational essays and especially admired Joan Didion. After he graduated in 2008, he became a personal assistant to the writer Daphne Merkin and began traveling the world. He was really into getting airline points, and he would make random trips to random cities to get them, Miss Kleinbaum said. You'd be texting with him, and he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm in Shanghai. Eager to understand his boyhood and his parents, Mr. Williams had begun an oral history project by interviewing his parents' friends in Alabama. In those interviews, John Williams said, James was characteristically blunt, typically starting by saying, you know I'm gay, right? In recent months, James was trying to get a visa for Mr. Thakur, who was by then his fiancée, so that they could be married in the United States. They had hoped to settle in Los Angeles and work in the entertainment industry. John said that his brother had really believed in the power of the media to change the way people thought about certain disfavored populations. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today. Let me introduce my guest. Tope Fadaran is a commentator on the intersections of race, gender, and sexuality with religion and popular culture. She has a research background in the history of medicine and has contributed writing on race and gender in American evangelical Christianity and portrayals of black girls and women and black communities in American pop culture. Tope Fadaran, thank you so much for joining me today. And let me apologize for that technical glitch at the very 
top. It looks like we've recovered from that, and it's great to see you. No problem. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Appreciate the invitation. Um, and also just wanted to say, you know, that was, it was really touching to hear to you read that obituary and there's the numbers are so overwhelming, right? With, with this epidemic and, and putting a human face to the cost is so important. So I really appreciated hearing that. Thanks for noting that. You know, last week I talked with several different um, obituary writers uh, and I talked with Dan Waken from the New York Times, who's actually the sort of editor of that whole Those mm -hmm. We've Lost series. And to hear them talk about working with them every day is really something I really admire what they're, what they're doing with that. But the toll on them also, I think, is pretty high. I mean, journalists don't talk about that often, but it, it really is, I think. So if it's all right, I think we'll start the way I usually do, just to um, ask you where you're calling from, what the pandemic situation looks like there, and what the vaccination situation might be looking like there. Yeah, so I live in the Boston area, and I've been here since 2004. So this is basically home base. Um, it, it, as, as I understand it, currently, cases are going down in Massachusetts. Um, and the vaccination rate is pretty high. Uh, it's over 50% um, of Massachusetts residents have gotten at least their first shot. Um, and that's characteristic of New England in general. Almost 60% of eligible New Englanders have, have gotten their first shot. Um, so things are feeling and looking and feeling pretty good right now. Um, Obviously, that's just for folks over 16. Um, I actually have a daughter who's in sixth grade um, and would be eligible if the FDA extends emergency authorization to 12 to 15 year olds. So um, I read yesterday that that's potentially around the corner, which I have also very, I was very relieved to hear. So um, personally, uh, getting very close to having my whole immediate family um, vaccinated and also just looking forward to having that access expanded to, to, um, younger teens as well. Um, in terms of, uh, community spread, it's, you know, I've, I have friends in other parts of the country who don't go out shopping, you know, they have everything delivered. Um, and there have been times when I felt more anxious, um, especially when cases were on the rise, but I've never quite felt it was so dangerous to go out that the spread was so high in the community that I couldn't just be like at the grocery store, for example. So um, it's, I felt weirdly sheltered um, in this part of the Boston area. There are other parts of the Boston area that have been more um, severely affected, but um, here in Medford, um, I think, compared to a lot of the country, we've been relatively sheltered from the most severe impacts of the pandemic. In terms of vaccination delivery there where you are in, in Medford, is that um, like a mass vaccination kind of situation or is it at uh, on demand at, at CVS or other kinds of drugstores? How's it working there? So now that vaccination is accessible to the general public, um, it is on demand at, at pharmacies. Um, I actually was eligible a little bit earlier than um, 
than the general population. And so I got, I just got my second Pfizer shot a week ago. Um, and that I got at an elementary school about 30 minutes from where I live. And it was a community clinic set up by a local hospital. So there are a lot of different avenues that people can get vaccine from. Um, some folks are getting it through a hospital that they might be a patient, have like a longstanding patient status at. Folks are getting it through schools. Our, our local Medford Public Schools have uh, just started holding vaccine clinics last week. Um, the Medford Public Schools also has a partnership with Tufts University, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, providing some opportunities for students and parents to get in the community to, to get vaccinated. So there are a lot of different avenues. Uh, but from what I understand, it's fairly easy to get an appointment now. When just four weeks ago, when I was looking for an appointment, I had to get up at like five, six in the morning to try and get an appointment. And now they're just hundreds of slots, which is great. I'm glad to hear there's so much available. And since you um, shared that you had your second Pfizer dose, and I'm glad to hear that. Uh, um, just quickly following up, because I've had a chance to ask others about this. What was the um, atmosphere like at the vaccination center? You said it was run by elementary school. Uh, so it was at an elementary school, but it was run by staff from a local um, general hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting. Both times I had an early morning appointment. Um, and the, f- the first appointment, um, I got in a lot quicker than I expected to. I, I, I got my shot pretty much at the time that I was scheduled to get it. Um, but I had to wait in line for a little bit and the intake took a little bit of time. And the second time I just went straight to intake and then got my shot and, um, was out in about half an hour. Um, so that was interesting just seeing the difference in volume in within just three weeks. Um, the other thing is that the, the, there was a young man sitting next to me, uh, when I got my first shot who had what I think was a panic attack, um, shortly after receiving the shot. Um, and it was just, it was just very surreal. Um, he couldn't like see the nurse waved a hand in front of his face and he couldn't, he couldn't see it. Um, and he was hyperventilating and it just kind of drove home for me the weight of this moment that we're in. Mm. I think um, one of the things that I have personally been frustrated by is how it seems like we're, we're trying to rush through resolving the situation um, sort of emotionally and psychologically and not processing the ways in which this is a trauma you know, a traumatic mm. experience. And, you know, um, I couldn't help but overhear some of what the this uh, man was saying to the nurse. And he said, I've never had a response like this before. Um, and I was like, well, you've never had a shot like this before in a moment like this before. This is not a regular vaccination. And so it makes sense that some people would have that response uh, in that moment. Um, and it also sort of made me hyper aware of my own physical reactions mm-hmm. um, as I was, you know, waiting for the 15 minutes to be up. You know, I could I felt my arm kind of go getting numb and um, seeing this guy next to me have, you know, an anxiety attack. 
am I having an an allergic reaction, which I've never had in my life? Mm -hmm. Um, It just, it just drove home the really anxious moment that we're in right now. Uh, That's a, I mean, thank you for sharing that too. And, and I haven't seen um, as much research as I'd like to see about that. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's so much, and we're going to talk about this in detail, these terms like vaccine hesitancy, Mm -hmm. um, are, they seem to be carrying a little bit too much freight. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that interval of time, even that 15 minutes while people are waiting, um, is one that others have described to me in similar kinds of ways, although that's a pretty dramatic case, what you described, but, um, mixtures of emotions of dread, of relief, of replaying the last 14, 15 months, um, of loss, and, you know, you're sitting there in this space where people are distant and not meant to be also sort of like it's not a party right. atmosphere, right? So um, I don't know. I haven't seen, I mean, even the way you were talking about it very clearly there and in de- describing his situation and your situation, I haven't heard many people talk about it like that. I think we need a lot more of that. Yeah. And, you know, again, it just goes to, it speaks to how much I think there's this unspoken desire to act as though everything is as close to normal as it could possibly be. Um, but in discussing with friends, I'm constantly making this analogy that it's, this is, you know, in terms of societal upheaval, you've got war, famine, um, pestilence, right? And this, this is one of the, this is the pestilence. So this is to me on the, on a similar psychological scale to being in the middle of a war, but we are trying to pretend like we're not at war (laughs) Um, and trying to continue um, living life as though it's just, it's peacetime, which it's not. Um, And I think that's, that's one of the ways in which um, we're not really processing what's going on. This is the first mass vaccination campaign in the U S in decades. Um, and, you know, speaking to the issue of vaccine hesitancy, it's the, it's the fastest the vaccine has ever, uh, been gone from research to being accessible to the general public, um, collapsed a bunch of steps together. Um, and then of course we've, we've all been in various degrees of lockdown and, and, um, having limits on our daily lives for the past year plus. Um, I definitely had that sense of relief um, when I got my first shot, in particular because uh, my immediate family, uh, my parents uh, live in the, the, on the Eastern seaboard as well. Um, my brother and his wife and another brother and his wife live in the South. Um, and at first, it was just uh, my dad and one of my brothers who had gotten their shots. Um, and for several weeks, we, we didn't really know when the rest of the family was going to be vaccinated. And then in the course of five days, all the other adults in our immediate family got our first shots. And so it just went in the matter of a week from we don't know when exactly we're going to be able to see each other next, you know, maybe the summer to we're all going to be fully vaccinated by May. Um, and that was really, there was a lot of whiplash with that, mm-hmm. um, a lot of relief, 
a lot of disbelief. Um, and, you know, there are two points at which I almost cried when my dad got his first shot. Um, and when I, I got my first shot. That again, it seems like, you know, as you're just, as you're discussing this, we haven't, I agree with you a hundred percent. We haven't yet found ways, I don't think, to talk, um, in a supportive enough manner for people and, and, uh, you're sort of reaching to the, the metaphor of, of war, which I was very resistant to early in the pandemic, mm-hmm. but as it's gone on, the endurance aspect has been, I think, important analogically. And then also in this moment, when you think of people who had family members engaged in war and then peace is declared. Mm. And it's like all of that worry and concern is now somehow supposed to be over. Right. But we know that's not how trauma works. Right. And someone doesn't have to die for your concern over them or over yourself to manifest itself for a long period of time after. So why are we in such a rush to say, okay, post COVID now? And even that, and that, that term drives me around the bend and I see it in use now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of it is, uh, at the beginning of this, it was, oh, well, we'll go into lockdown for two to three weeks, maybe a month. And then we'll come out and it'll be something kind of like normal life. Maybe not exactly normal life, but you know, this is just, you know, sort of a stopgap, a shock to the, to the pandemic. And then we can kind of continue to go on as normal. Um, and that hope, I think, just ended up getting pushed back further and further and further. We never really got to the moment where we said, okay, this is the new normal, right? It was always, when can we get back to normal? Not how do we, how do we cope with this? moment as, as or with this period that we're in as best as we can. I want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking with Tope Fodoran today. Uh, let's turn to, well, first I'd like to get a little bit more of kind of your research mm-hmm. background and then we're going to talk about the it, issues of history and myth around um, so-called black vaccine hesitancy. But first, um, talk to us a little bit about your interest in the history of medicine and research um, before the pandemic started, what are the issues that uh, bring you into these kinds of concerns? And and then how do you see those interests now differently or or the same uh, in the context of the pandemic? Right. Uh, So my undergraduate degree is in history and I concentrated in history of uh, science, medicine and technology at Duke University. Um, and went into uh, the history of science doctoral program at Harvard um, after I graduated. Um, I decided to separate from that program before I got my PhD, but I spent a lot of time there and learned a lot there. Um, And I'm very grateful for the sort of critical framework that that gave me for thinking about um, the world, about media, about um, culture. Um, Since since undergrad, I've been very interested, uh, particularly in infectious disease and in epidemic disease and how um, societies respond to that, how they um, how they try to contain it, how they understand the causes of it, um, and the societal and cultural impacts of, of epic, epidemic disease. Um, so that background was something I def- 
I found that interest being renewed as uh, it became clear that we were in the middle of a pandemic. Um, an interest that I hadn't really pursued in a long time, but um, just had this really sort of surreal feeling of both experiencing the pandemic and kind of observing it from a from a sort of academic intellectual perspective in a way that I, I hadn't done in a long time. So just personally, I found myself watching and reading a lot more news specifically about COVID um, than I did before the pandemic because I was one concerned, but also just interested in how everything was playing out. Um, and then it, Outside of my formal academic life, um, I, I guess you could say I'm one of the, I'm a member of the, the youngest sort of blogging generation. Um, I started blogging, um, my freshman year in college, um, in 2000, 2001. Um, and those were, personal blogs. So blogger, live journal, I sort of got in the habit of writing about what I was thinking and engaging in discussions with, with other folks who were having interesting um, conversations. Um, and that was one of the way in which I processed my ideas um, and, and thought through questions. Um, I grew up in a very conservative religious uh, evangelical, Nigerian evangelical family. We moved to the U.S. when I was eight, and um, I grew up in predominantly white fundamentalist and evangelical churches. Um, so as I moved away from that um, sort of foundational experience, I found myself really interested in processing that through writing and connecting through other people with similar uh, experiences. Uh, so I started blogging about that publicly, but under a pseudonym in 2010, uh, specifically thinking about race, gender, and sexuality as a Black immigrant, uh, queer woman who grew up in white, conservative American mm -hmm. churches um, and wanted to put out there a perspective that I just wasn't seeing in a lot of the criticism both from within and outside of evangelicalism of the misogyny and the, and well, there wasn't very much criticism of the racism um, and transphobia and homophobia and all of that. So that's how I got into writing for a broader audience. Um, and eventually that expanded into writing, not just about um, race, gender and sexuality as it intersects with religion and American evangelicalism specifically, but just more broadly um, with American popular culture. Uh, so that's the, the, the intersection of sort of representations of, of black girls and black women spe specifically, but again, broadly race, gender and sexuality and history of medicine are sort of what brought me to, to this podcast. Thank you for that. And, and it is uncanny. Uh, and and you, you're not the first person who I've spoken with who's described this experience of that, um, that deep knowledge in history and writing 
um, in the, like in the areas you're, you're talking about. And then you see them playing out in the midst of this pandemic. And it's just a strange moment when your research catches up with the headlines. Mm. It's strange enough when it catches up with the headlines one day, mm. but when it's every day right. for over a year, that's really something. Right. Right. Um, You know, and speaking to that, recently, there have been a lot of conversations about anti-Asian racism. And um, that was actually something that I was concerned about early on um, in the pandemic, because from my own, you know, study in history, history of medicine, history of epidemics specifically, a fair, a, a constant is that you find an out group to blame this right. uh, this disease on. Um, and I can, I, I had concerns and I know a lot of other people had concerns as well that this was going to become uh, an excuse and a vehicle for, for increasingly violent anti-Asian racism, which unfortunately um, first was encouraged from, from positions of, of power but it also has turned out, it's turned out to be the case. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the, it is very surreal sort of seeing the things that you've seen, you've studied historically happening in our current moment and, and, and witnessing them directly. It's interesting too, to me that um, among disaster researchers, and I use that term extremely broadly, um, that I've gotten, I've heard differential sort of reactions that some feel, um, empowered in this moment because mm. they're talking with journalists, because their work is finding uptake, um, because the um, analytical things that they've been, like, just as you said, they've been telling people, hey, there's a history of a problem of an outgroup in the middle of a pandemic, and we should be attentive to that. And, and seeing that picked up by major news organizations, that might feel empowering for um, some of us who work at a slower time scale than the daily mm. news. But I've also heard Others describe this experience as really disempowering and and really um, another case where we're just not being listened to. Mm. Those of us who spend our lives researching these things and trying to, you know, write and and talk and blog and and make this knowledge available, and we find again, as we were talking just a moment ago, the rush to forget and move on, get back to normal. Um, that's concerning because to me, part of when I what I hear when I hear people say that is. Well, we've learned everything we need to know here, so let's. It's, it's time to move on and start talking about the um, baseball season or right. or, the, or the 2022 midterms or whatever. And many of us are saying, "Well, wait a minute, we haven't learned what we were supposed to here in this moment. We've barely yeah. started." Yeah. No, I have to say, I'm more in, in that latter camp. Um, I it has been extremely distressing um, to see how this has been. I have to say, actually, early on in in the pandemic, I was actually encouraged by how much coverage there was of racial disparities in the impact of the virus specifically. There was a lot of coverage on the disparate impact on Black communities um, and to a lesser degree on Latinx communities and on Native American communities. Um, but that, and that kind of coincided with... Um, the protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, but that didn't last very long. Um, and it was just one piece of the coverage. Um, 
in general, I'm 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 with the folks who who feel kind of like Cassandra's uh, in this moment. You know, there's we ha we there's so much knowledge and experience to draw on. I mean, the the right the constant reference has been to the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, um, and even from that, we haven't even applied the lessons from that that we could have to this yeah. moment, much less the broader wealth of knowledge that historians and sociologists of medicine um, have produced and can offer to us to, to understand and better respond to this uh, pandemic. So I, I've, I found this past year from many perspectives, but specifically from this, um, from the perspective of having been a student uh, of history of medicine, extremely distressing. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Tope Fodoran today. And I uh, was particularly excited to talk with you about the issue, so-called issue around vaccine hesitancy among Black Americans. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to just read a little bit um, to set up some of what we're going to talk about now from the Kaiser Family Foundation poll, which appeared in December of 2020, which then spurred a lot of journalism in December and January. Um, and here's what the poll said. About a quarter, 27% of the public remains vaccine hesitant. So again, this is December 2020, saying they probably or definitely would not get a COVID-19 vaccine, even if it were available for free and deemed safe by scientists. Vaccine hesitancy, this uh, report goes on, is highest among Republicans, 42%, those ages 30 to 49, 36%, and rural residents, 35%. Importantly, it says, 35% of black adults, a group that has borne a disproportionate burden of the pandemic, say they definitely or probably would not get vaccinated, as do one third of those who say they've been deemed essential workers. So that's a snapshot in time of December from Kaiser Family Foundation, which produces a lot of health attitude polling. I, let's use that as a way into this discussion. What do you make of those numbers and what were you paying attention to at that moment and how that was being reported? Yeah, that's that's a great place to start. Um, so I personally got interested in this reporting, just noticing that around November, December, there was this explosion of coverage of Black vaccine hesitancy, specific, specifically rather than vaccine hesitancy, maybe I should say, um, an explosion of interest in black willingness or unwillingness to, to take COVID vaccines, which I found curious for a few reasons. One, because um, for most of the period that we were talking about, the COVID vaccine being in development, COVID vaccines being in development and being in trials, the question was about whether the general American public would trust these vaccines, right? 
Um, and would enough, and, and this question has come back, right, in this moment, will enough Americans take these vaccines for us, for us to achieve herd immunity? And so that was the question that I saw being asked um, from June to about November. And then at some moment, it shifted pretty dramatically from my perspective, from being, will enough Americans take this? Do Americans trust this process? To will black people take it, which raised questions for me. Um, one of the questions being, uh, where, where, what was informing this concern, right? Um, what, where were the numbers? Where was the research? Um, and the Kaiser study is one of one of the studies that was frequently referred to in this in some of this reporting, although. You know, someone who's who's really looking at at the source material closely would would have to confirm this for me. But a lot the reporting started before that Kaiser study was out. Mm -hmm. So my sense was that a lot of this was assuming there was going to be a problem, and then the studies that came out shortly after this reporting started to gain steam were interpreted as confirming this assumption that there would be a problem. Um, the other thing that I found interesting about the numbers that were reported um, was, again, why the specific focus on, on black vaccine hesitancy when the numbers are higher for Republicans, um, the numbers are comparable for um, adults, uh, I can't remember the exact age range, uh, you said, but in the 30s and 40s. Right. Um, and even if you look at it just by racial breakdown, the numbers were highest for Black Americans, but they weren't different in degree from other groups of Americans. And one of the one of the issues I had with the framing is that, to my mind, this is it's not a Black vaccine hesitancy problem; it's an American vaccine hesitancy problem, right? And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of which is that vaccine research and development was heavily politicized by our previous president. Um, and he clearly wanted to rush the process along for, uh, for his own political gain, which would naturally undermine public trust in any vaccines that resulted uh, from that process. Um, I also thought, you know, just speaking about messaging, Operation, uh, Operation Warp Speed is a terrible, is <laughs> a terrible title for, <laughs> for vaccine development. I mean, I understand the intent behind it. We're going to get this done quickly, but people want to know that it's safe. And the idea that we're going to get this done as quickly as possible is uh, intention yeah. with the idea that this is also as safe as it possibly can be. I'm right there with you. And also the, the reaching to science fiction. It's like, I don't think you need to reach to science fiction <laughs> for this. But we yeah. have other words that we can invoke to talk right. about urgency without having right. to reach to science fiction. Right. Um, and, you know, of course, with anything new and something, even if it it's properly tested, if it feels untested, right, to the general public, there are going to be questions about this. So I thought it was odd that what was clearly a problem, a, a hesitancy issue that cut across racial, 
political and other demographics was suddenly being framed as specifically a black problem. Um, and I didn't think the numbers supported that, uh, both in terms of uh, the level of black vaccine hesitancy uh, compared to other groups, and also in terms of the fact that vaccine hesitancy was relatively high just across the board. Uh, so that's how I got interested in, in, in this reporting. It's interesting, and, and thanks for going back and developing it before November, because I do remember some of that discussion as well. And it was um, some, I think, maybe quite useful at that moment. Um, we could debate how useful it's been in the longer run, but some discussion about um, history of, of public health for the African-American community in the United mm. States going way back. And that's an important context piece. But so what were you seeing there because the way you're describing it you saw that almost as laying a predicate for a vaccine hesitancy problem that's racial that actually hasn't turned out to be true but in that earlier moment um some of that knowledge sharing that knowledge is important i think right. so it seems to set up a bit of a problem here right right it's it's a it's a complicated it's a complicated issue right because we do need to talk about historical and present day medical racism, right? Um, it's an important issue to talk about. Uh, but framing and also the claims that are being made um, and the solutions that are being proposed and the evidence that's being claimed for, for all of those also matters. So, you know, I found myself really torn and I think probably a lot of um, black academics and public health scholars and other sort of cultural critics were in a similar position. On the one hand, we know that black communities are some of the most hard hit by this pandemic in this country. Um, and just personally, we want, you know, as a, as a black woman, I want my family, I want my friends, I want my relatives, we want our communities and people who look like us to be vaccinated as widely as possible so that we can stop this thing from just devastating, devastating our communities. Uh, so there's a very real and pressing concern that needs to be addressed there. And there's also a very real history that's being invoked. But the question is, I, I, that, two questions come to mind for me. One, um, is the history being invoked specifically, and how it's being invoked specifically relevant to this moment? So Tuskegee is the touch point that continually comes up in these discussions of black vaccine hesitancy. Um, First of all, as a lot of people have pointed out, it's not really an analogical situation to the moment that we're in. In Tuskegee, men who had, black men who had contracted syphilis were left untreated and not informed of their status, right? Um, and observed over decades. In this case, we're talking about how black communities feel about a public health intervention that is 
ostensibly to 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 benefit and it actually is to benefit us but how do we feel about this uh does does what is framed as a benefit actually look like a benefit to black communities right so it's it's a completely different um issue and there are better parallels for that issue so for example um long long acting birth control right is something that we know has been more often offered to black and brown uh, communities and to uh, people of uh, teenagers and, 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 and young adults in those communities at a higher rate than they are to um, people of reproductive age in other communities. Um, and there are real questions about the, the health effects of, of long acting uh, reproductive control and also um, the implications of whether it's creating incentives or, or direct, directing certain populations towards this kind of birth control versus other birth control options. So that's something where it's a necessary an important public health intervention. But the question is, how is this intervention being offered to different populations? And um, is the health of those populations really at the forefront and how it's being offered? Um, and are there other motivations behind it? So uh, you know, to put it really simply, mm. um, are we trying to keep black and brown people from having more kids um, right. and then recommending um, more temporary forms of birth control to populations that we think are deserving of having more children, right? Mm. So that to me is just one example of a mm. closer parallel to this, the question that we're looking at right now. Tuskegee is not a great example. And I also don't think that Tuskegee, it's an easy example to reach for, for a lot of people, including Black Americans, but I don't I don't really believe, and this is just speaking personally, that it's it's at the forefront of a lot of Black Americans' minds when they're thinking about why they might be reluctant to take a COVID vaccine. Um, I think most of us have experiences in our own lives with the medical system, with our with our doctors in hospitals of medical racism that we can draw on that make us distrustful of the medical establishment. We don't have to go back to, to some, a study from the 1930s to the 1970s to say racism is a problem in um, the American medical system. Racism is a problem in the American medical system now, and we are experiencing it now. Right now, Black, uh, black people who give birth in hospitals have a higher uh, mortality rate and our babies have a higher mortality rate. That's happening right now. And we can see how doctors and nurses treat us right now. Whether it's from thinking that uh, we are more tolerant of pain than other groups of uh, other ethnic and racial groups um, and therefore denying us pain medication or thinking that our skin is thicker than other racial groups. Like there, there are these, there are real present day issues of medical racism that we are confronting right now. And I think those 
are probably much more present <laughs> when people think about um, when black people think about why they might be reluctant to take uh, a newly developed COVID-19 vaccine. There's not trust in the medical establishment because the medical establishment has not been trustworthy in our own present day experience. Um, and the medical establishment is also part of a broader culture that we also know is racist and doesn't value black life. So why would we trust the system that has never kept us safe to keep us safe in this in this moment. Um, all of that to say, I think the effect of reaching for Tuskegee as like this all encompassing explanation for why black people don't trust COVID-19 vaccines is to minimize the reality of medical racism right now. Um, it makes black people look um, aggrieved in a way that doesn't really uh, reflect reality when you, if you frame it that way, mm -hmm. um, and kind of ignorant because again, you're talking about withholding of treatment versus trusting in the safety of a treatment. It's a, it's a different issue. So it, it doesn't seem to me to really reflect, um, why in this particular moment, black communities might be hesitant about COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and it, you know, it has a ring of truth to it because the, the reason is medical racism and general racism, but uh, I, I think the, when you zoom in on the details of how it's been framed, it, it, it's, not, it's not quite right. I, it, it's so valuable to me to to learn from you in, on this and and just to underline a couple of the things that really strike me in what you're talking about you know the and it's totally resonant that 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 Tuskegee sentence was in so much of the news reporting and I don't want to impute any motives to any particular news organization because I know um, some of them um, I think you you see the amount of attention that they've tried to pay in the pandemic to the inequality issues, particularly after George Floyd's murder. And, you know, it's like, uh, you know, mainstream news organizations in the United States are suddenly discovering racial inequality as an everyday thing in America, not just a once in a while thing. Um, having said that, that Tuskegee sentence or paragraph became a standard bit in every story. And Something about that, just in the context of what you were just saying, I think is really important. I mean, to me, it shows us like a general poverty of knowledge of Black American history generally, that you have to reach to one case. It strikes me as, as the same way that, you know, American civil rights history is taught more generally in K through 12, but also in college classrooms. You go and look at those textbooks. Where's civil rights? Civil rights mm -hmm. is in the 1960s and it's over. Yeah. There's a you know, the movement happens and you turn the page and, and then there's the assassination of Dr. King and, and then maybe there's another paragraph and then that's, you're done with that. Right. And I feel like your description of Tuskegee is similar. It's like this terrible thing that happened in the past. Aren't we glad that we've moved on from that? Mm -hmm. And of course we won't forget that. That's part of the legacy. And then, it, then now we've arrived in this, you know, great right. moment of multiracial tolerance. Right. It gives this impression that 
there was this one sort of crystallizing moment where black people decided we don't trust the medical establishment anymore. And then never the twain shall meet. And to this day, black people are carrying a chip on their shoulders about doctors when in fact, (laughs) there's a long, long history and an ongoing reality of medical racism that we could cite at, at, at length. Um, as reasons why, and even, I wouldn't even frame it as black people don't trust the metal, medical establishment. I would frame it as the medical, the medical establishment has not been trustworthy, has not proven trustworthy for black people. Um, so it's, the question itself, I think is backwards. It's why don't, why won't black people get this vaccine rather than what is it that we can do with the COVID-19 vaccine specifically, but just in general, to make medicine more trustworthy and better meet the needs of Black communities, rather than what is wrong with Black people that they won't take this vaccine, right? Mm. The other thing that that I would say in relation to that is that um, the reasons for vaccine hesitancy run the gamut, right? Obviously there's a political, there's a lot of political influence behind vaccine hesitancy among conservatives, Republicans, and probably rural rural white Americans, white evangelicals as well. The numbers might be similar or even higher or lower, but that doesn't mean the reasons are the same, right? So, the, the way in which it was being reported sort of implied one that black vaccine hesitancy was significantly higher than in other communities, which I don't think was borne out by any of the numbers, certainly not, not a substantial difference in degree, right? Um, but also, even if those explanations were true, right, that doesn't imply there's a specific, like, there's a there's a specific vaccine hesitancy problem that among black communities that, that that alone needs to be addressed. We have multiple vaccine hesitancy issues and all of those need to be addressed. Um, so why, what seemed to be like an obsession actually with black vaccine hesitancy. And I'll, I'll give you a concrete example of how I think it, it crossed into sort of exoticization of black communities. Um, I would see both in uh, in news reports, in uh, print and online articles, and just in social media comments. Well, I think we should have Beyonce and LeBron James go out and tell people to take the vaccine and then black people will take it, which is simplistic and really insulting. Like, uh, you know, just the, to put it kind of flippantly, like, oh, if we get the sports ballers and the hip hoppers to tell the black people to take the vaccine, then they'll take it because all they need is somebody that they like, like, and is famous to tell them it's okay. And that will address all of their concerns, which is, <laughs> is, is absurd. Um, and the other thing I saw was um, there was one article in particular that was the headline was something like 
black pastors are not quite yet willing to like mm-hmm. to go out on a limb and tell their congregations to take to get COVID vaccines. Like why <laughs> why why is it this one community and pillars of the community from this one group who we are scrutinizing as to whether they are recommending getting vaccines or not, whether they're willing to get vaccines or not, and how they're using their social capital, right, to um, influence their communities. There are myriad examples of white evangelical pastors who have told their congregations, maybe not don't take the vaccine, but I am definitely not getting it. And also that COVID is not a pandemic. And that this is not has not gotten the same kind of coverage, despite the fact that white evangelicals represent a quarter of um, the uh, American, <laughs> like a, a substantial portion of the American population. Um, so why to focus on pastors in 13 percent of the population? And and why the placement of a special responsibility on black celebrities and black athletes and black pastors, mm-hmm. you need to go and tell your people to take this thing in a way that you're they're not reporting about white pastors or white conservative politicians. And so it, I, I think when you have that kind of disparity in how things are being covered, you have to ask questions about why that is. Well, so this this issue of, of um, hesitancy then has sort of swamped uh, what I think is more important scrutiny around just access. And, and that speaks back to issues you were talking about before, good reasons that um, black Americans might have for being really uh, cautious about the medical establishment in, Amer- in America might just have to do with issues around access to health care mm-hmm. uh, or lack of access or quality of, of um, health care that's being provided. I want to read a sentence from a, a uh, this is an op-ed that appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer on March 19th by um, Ivan Walks and Charles Ellison. I was going to read one sentence, but they they're reacting here to the governor of Maryland singling out mm-hmm. um African-Americans in Maryland as somehow the implication is sort of holding up the vaccination effort with their hesitancy. And their response is clear. They said it's not up to the official in charge of a federal statewide or local response to calibrate who receives vaccine based on an impression of one or two communities that openly discuss vaccine skepticism. It is up to those officials to do their job and distribute as much vaccine as possible, period. So your your thoughts on that, because that seemed to me to, to really sort of shift the entire conversation to one to say, no, let's lay aside this preconceived notion that you have right. that blacks in America are just, you know, maybe unreasonably skeptical. And we got to get across that. And let's just right. focus on you doing your job, which is, is the vaccine there? Right. Right. Um, one thing I was really struck by in December the same time that this huge sort of interest in uh, black attitudes towards the vaccine was blooming, um, there was a CNN piece, a very brief CNN piece on pharmacy deserts. 
um, and I think it was focusing on Philly and talking about how a lot of black communities in Philly are in pharmacy deserts. So if you're going to distribute vaccines through pharmacies, how are black people supposed to get it if they don't have pharmacies in their communities, right? Um, so there's a, before, it's a, it's a, it's putting the cart before the horse. We're asking why won't, the other thing I think is important to notice with, note with timing is that these questions were being asked before the vaccine was available to anybody. <laughs> like the only people who had gotten these vaccines were, were folks who had gotten it in trials at the point that these questions started to be asked. It wasn't, it, neither the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine had gotten emergency use authorization yet. So why it's like a, a, a solution in search of a problem. Like you're assuming this problem will be there before you even know that it's there. Um, and like you said, uh, before you can answer the question, are black people specially, like uniquely unwilling to take these vaccines, you have to ask, can black people even take these vaccines? Like, are they available to black people? Are they available to black communities? Uh, but that, that, that answer was already there. Um, and it's interesting you bring up Larry Hogan because Maryland is actually my home state. I've lived in Massachusetts for a really long time now, but I grew up in mm -hmm. Maryland. Um, and I remember I, I said this on Twitter at some point that it, frankly, on my most cynical days, this seems to me like, obviously, there are lot different parties that are putting out this narrative for different reasons. But one reason seemed to me to be to preempt questions about disparities in vaccine distribution, which would inevitably be there because mm -hmm. disparities mm -hmm. in uh, access to healthcare exist across racial disparities specifically across the medical establishment. That's just a reality of healthcare in America. And so that was necessarily going to be the case with vaccine distribution as well. So to me, it particularly seems sinister to before the vaccines were even available to anybody say black people won't take this knowing both as a black American, as someone, and as someone who knows some things about race and medicine in this country, that black people are never going to be given the same access to those vaccines as white Americans. The other thing is um, in Maryland specifically, so Prince George's County in Maryland has, you know, uh, the, the, one of the highest concentration of black PhDs in the country and one of the most affluent um, black populations in the country uh, and has a, a lot of black leadership. And there's a mass vaccination site in Prince George's County. But a lot of the people who are getting vaccinated, even in Prince George's County, were people not from Prince George's County, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. you think about like mass vaccination sites require either someone who transportation provided to you or you have your own transportation, right? And who's, and you have time that you can take off of work, right? Um, and there are disparities even in, in, in terms of that. So you have the situation where um, people from even more affluent counties from what, than Prince George's County and a disproportionately white population were coming to Prince George's County for mass vaccination. 
you know, to be perfectly truthful, even in my case, you know, I went, uh, I got my vaccine in a community that is, um, has a, a large Dominican population. Most of the patient base there is um, Dominican. Uh, mm-hmm. So even in my case, because I have a car, because I could take time of, off of work, I was able to make an appointment and place 30 minutes from me um, mm-hmm. and get a vaccine in a place that's not my immediate community, right? And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we have to think about who has the ability to do that and who doesn't, right? And how do we compensate for that? I was thinking of that recently when I, I was listening to President Biden, who's being interviewed, and, and he's, you know, cheerleading vaccination. Mm-hmm. And, of course, and, and but he made this point, he said that every American now can, can receive vaccination on demand within five miles of their home. Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful number if you've never been to Baltimore <laughs> or Philadelphia. Right. So, so take go look at those maps, right? Um, and you can see that yeah, it's probably true, but that means probably crossing a county line. If you live in West Baltimore or you live in North Philadelphia, that five miles is or pretty Boston. fast. It can take an hour or two to get that five distance. miles if you don't have a car. Now to be so that's one thing to to put in there, and I and I don't again I'm not I'm not quite sure you know. I think that that's just an impressive statistic to read to a lot of people, but it assumes a certain mindset that is that five miles, if you're suburban, um, doesn't feel like a great distance. But within an urban context, that can mean a great distance. The other piece is some recognition to what you were just pointing to a second ago, um, that you might actually have to deal with the issue that people need to have an hour off to go do this. So now we're talking about class and politics in America. Yeah. And the fact that the federal government needs to compensate employers for one hour of missed work time. And that that was even, I mean, I was, I don't know why I'm surprised about anything anymore, but when I heard that I was stunned. And then for a second, and then I said, Oh, of course there will be employers, mm-hmm. particularly um, employers who have lower wage employees who will tell them, no, you can't go do that. Right. Why should I give you an? I'll give you an hour off to vote. Why should I give you an hour off to go and get a vaccine that I don't think? Right, works? and then there's also the side effects of the vaccine. I I took the day after my second shot off from work in anticipation that I might have, and not everybody can do that. You know, right. I took sick time, um, and that was fine. That's not something a lot of American workers can take for granted. So just uh, reminding folks that I'm talking with Tope Fodoron today about vaccine hesitancy issues. Um, let's just, I, I just want to follow up on this last part of what we were talking about then. Do you think it is appropriate in any sense to try to tailor information and discussion about vaccines based on race at all? Or would you be against that. You just don't think that's the right way to move forward. And and I know that you're not a, a public health 
Hmm. You're not in a position of public health or communication. So I don't want to push Hmm. this conversation into a realm where you're not comfortable. Hmm. But I am curious about that because even what we've just been talking about, those intersections there, ideology, religion, Hmm. race, geography, there's lots of different pieces you could pick up that might be much more effective than saying, I need a a black communication strategy for the vaccine. Well, what about just talking about a working class strategy? Right. or just a science literacy strategy, which might get us a lot further to convincing people that this is what they should do to try to make this uh, pandemic go away. Well, like I was saying earlier, I think one of the issues with the framing of vaccine hesitancy is that it can uh, obscure the fact that there are many reasons why people are hesitant to take these vaccines. And I think, uh, you know, I'm not in public health. I'm not... um, I'm not in science communication, but I'm very interested in science communication as someone who um, was in science studies and history of medicine. Um, and I, I don't think there's an issue with, with messages that are tailored to um, racial and ethnic communities or you know, other, by other demographic factors. But if you're gonna tailor that message to a particular community, you need to make sure that the message actually reflects reality and actually speaks to the concerns that people have, right? Um, So I think what we need is a range of communication strategies to reach the different categories of vaccine hesitancy that exist across um, the American public. And also we need to recognize we had a pre-existing vaccine denialism movement and those people will never be reached, right? Um, But I think it's also interesting that that movement has sort of sometimes it's talked about hand in hand with with COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy, which I think is a little bit different. Obviously, there's an overlap um, in terms of people who will absolutely refuse to take COVID-19 vaccines. Um, Some of those are bound to be generally vaccine skeptics or deniers. But the the population is not identical. It's overlapping. Right. So there are the folks that will never be reached because they just don't believe in vaccines. And then there are conservatives who have, um, you know, dismissed masking and distancing and vaccines because their president politicized all of those things and um, undermined trust in uh, public health figures, right? Um, and there are white evangelicals who, um, their reasons are a mix of political and religious. So someone like say Francis Collins, who the head of the NIH, who's a a publicly an evangelical Christian, you you might think about someone like that as being, um, a messenger who makes sense to that community. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are, you know, I know folks who are um, sort of natural, crunchy folks. I mean, they prefer, you know, I don't want to put chemicals in my body, right? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, those, that, you're going to need different messaging for that. And then obviously, like the base of science, science literacy in this country is extremely low. So that is also something that we need to address. All of that to say, I, I could see a place for messaging tailored to black communities. Uh, But it has to 
come, like you said, from a place of of deep knowledge, which doesn't exist, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the media and in, in a lot of sort of public health leadership, um, and also a place of um, listening to what Black people actually have to say about what we experience and what Black communities um, actually deal with day to day. Um, you know, one thing I found, sorry, my cat is causing trouble. We like, we like visitors of all species, <laughs> it's totally fine. Um, one of the things I found really interesting is with, you know, with the Moderna vaccine, uh, and I, Kizzy Corbett, I think it is, who, who's a black scientist at NIH who is involved in development, um, one of the lead scientists in developing the Moderna vaccine, like, you know, Dr. Fauci has multiple times, you know, the person who developed the Moderna vaccine is a black woman. Like, well, we know that black people are not exempt from being complicit with white supremacy. That is not a message that takes seriously, understands, I think it takes seriously black people's concerns, but I don't think he understands when he says things like that. Um, To go back to Tuskegee, right? One of the ways that, um, the scientists who withheld treatment from black men in the syphilis study, the ways that they found men to study was through a black nurse who was a liaison between the white doctors and the rural black community. So we know that just having a black face on the medical establishment is not enough to end medical racism, right? right. So it has to come from a place of really confronting, like, what are the issues that, that undermine, that make the medical establishment untrustworthy to black communities? How do we address that with COVID-19 specifically? And also, I think a lot of the questions that black people have are the same questions that everybody else has. You know, is there a real virus in this vaccine, right? Like, were steps kicked with, um, in, in sort of testing the safety? And so just, just, General information, I think, would be that's presented in a way that doesn't, that isn't dismissive of why people would be skeptical mm-hmm. of, of a predominantly white medical est- establishment would be extremely helpful. And I, and also I think distinguishing, uh, between, um, skepticism and refusal or hesitance and refusal. So, and we were talking about this before the call that the numbers of um, black Americans, the percentage saying that they want to wait and see or definitely will not take a COVID vaccine has been going down steadily Mm -hmm. as it has with the general public since these became available, right? and with other demographics, uh, I think you mentioned like white Republicans um, and white evangelicals, that number has not been going down, right. which is kind of interesting. Um, but it also sort of speaks to the danger of making these assumptions without um, cultural competence and without historical knowledge. Um, one of the things that I read, there's a KQED article about Tuskegee and sort of the role that Tuskegee has kind of occupied in 
a medical imagination about mm -hmm. in terms of how doctors understand black people's attitudes towards medicine and that a lot of people just assumed that because Tuskegee was so horrible that it would forever undermine black trust in medicine and it turns out there's not really a lot of evidence for that like when folks have actually gone and you know done um, anthropological or sociolo sociological studies that there's there's not a lot of evidence um, one that that you can pinpoint Tuskegee as a reason for this or that um, Tuskegee has made black Americans say less willing to participate in trials or in studies. Um, and I, there was a sentence in that article that I found really interesting that what the, the, one of the studies that actually tried to answer this question found that black people were more wary of mm -hmm. studies and trials, but ultimately just as willing as other demographics mm -hmm. to participate in these. So, and, and that, you know, speaks to another question, you know, um, they often say that, oh, we can't find black participants or participants of color to be in these trials and studies. And people say, oh, it's because black people don't trust the medical establishment. Another kind of solution, uh, an answer in search of a, a, a question, if that makes sense, that it's, it's assumed beforehand, but black people won't participate. And so right. then we don't have to ask questions about why hard questions about why black people aren't represented proportionally. That what you were mentioning there about this change um, since December, I mean, this most recent uh, Kaiser poll, Kaiser Family Foundation poll says just that. It said, points out, um, just reading from the poll, it says that the share who say they will definitely not get the vaccine is 13% now. It's remained about the same since December. Um, but black adults saw the largest increase in vaccine enthusiasm. So now here we're, we're, we're away from hesitancy now. We moved into vaccine enthusiasm. It's um, interesting language. 55% of them now say they've either gotten vaccinated or want to as soon as possible. But 25% of black adults, according to this, still want to take a what they call a wait and see attitude about how the vaccine works before they get vaccinated. I feel like even the language has evolved a bit. Um, uh, and that will take some research and uh, uh, probably many dissertations and books will come out of how even this polling data gets reported out because it becomes right. the, the basis of a lot of mass media reporting. I was happy right. to see that. But then uh, to speaking to something you mentioned just a minute ago, I saw, I think for the first time this last week, I can't read everything, but I, I try to read a lot, but the, like a really fine grained piece of reporting that tried to understand, um, a white middle-aged Republican mm. of why he wasn't getting the vaccine mm. instead of just saying, Oh, he's a Trump voter or whatever. And it actually interviewed him and his wife and they right. got into issues of masculinity. And, mm. and I thought, okay, finally we're seeing some of this. Finally, we're just sort of like, you know, the same kind of scrutiny that black Americans had been receiving since before the vaccine was available mm. to them. Now we're finally seeing some reports was one story. So I don't want to overblow mm. it, but, um, that is what's going to be re required, I think, because as you pointed out, the, the stable number here has been white Republicans, middle-aged and older, who have said, I'm not going to get it. And then you ask right. them three months later and they said, I'm still not, not going to get, get it. it. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and it's interesting when you like uh, what came to mind when you were talking about this profile, which I, I haven't seen, but um, it's something I, I'm off, I often discuss um, with friends and colleagues is that white people get to be individuals and black people are black, right? So you're doing, you have this, this profile of this guy that's getting into his, you know, deep concerns and motivations about why he's making decisions that he's making. And then with black, there are also sort of interviews of, of, of black individuals, but then it becomes this stand in for black people generally. And then yeah. also there's this one stand in historical explanation of Tuskegee for it. And it's just like, this is how black people think. Here is how this one white middle-aged Republican thinks. And I think that's, that's kind of a, a snapshot of how race often operates in our media ecosystem in general. Black people are a monolith and mm -hmm. white people mm -hmm. get to be people. Um, and on the flip side, right, when, even when you see a phenomenon that is clearly disproportionately white, it's never connected to the whiteness of the people involved. So like the vaccine denialism movement is a white middle-class movement, but you, there's not much reckoning with the whiteness of it. And right. what does it mean that it, it, uh, which it, it means something because, um, it always means something in, in, in this country. It's not incidental. But uh, again, white people get to be individuals with individual motivations for why they do things. And then black people are people with black reasons for their black decisions, um, which I think is a, a framing that we need to resist. I mean, you know, on a, even just a, uh, like a small personal, I, like I said, I'm um, from an immigrant family. I'm Nigerian American. Um, my ethnicity is like, there are black people of all different ethnicities in this country and you can't, you know, and, and of different classes of different, you know, different backgrounds, you can't collapse everything into right. this one monolithic black experience or black perspective. Um, we do need to talk about anti-blackness and racism generally and in medicine but we also need to keep that perspective that black people at the end of the day are people and they're humans and we all have our own individual concerns and motivations as well. We're almost up on time. In fact, I've kept you long over time because I've just learned so much in this conversation. Um, do you have time for one more question or should we, sure. should we wrap up? Okay. Um, because you mentioned at the outset of our conversation that um, you have a, a child who's in sixth mm -hmm. grade. And, and so you also come at these issues from the perspective of, of a mother, mm -hmm. a parent living through this pandemic. And that's, um, you know, solidarity. I mean, this is a lot of us they're, they're sort of yeah. like trying to cope with all these many things. Right. Um, but I, but back to what we were talking about a minute ago, and, and you pointed out that um, pretty soon it will be the case, I think, that 12 to 15 year olds will be, and then, and then probably all age right. groups will be approved for vaccine um, usage um, mm -hmm. to get vaccinated. I wonder how worried you are that this same discourse though about black vaccine hesitancy will then get mapped onto motherhood or black, black parents. 
that that will also become a special area of scrutiny, just an extension of the previous scrutiny that we've seen right. over the last 12 months to say, okay, well, um, we have to really worry that black Americans will not be vaccinated because of this right. pesky, whatever it may be. And so I, I've been thinking about this too. Is that going to then just get piled on to the concern about black children in America becoming right. vaccinated? Uh, before our conversation, I did a really quick, quick like Google trend search just on black vaccine hesitancy to see, um, you know, to just roughly track um, how it's been discussed online over the last few months. And there was a peak in like from like November to January and like a peak like March and April. And it's it's going down again. Um, what I and I was going to say this earlier, I think it's interesting that despite the fact that now um, there's a little bit more recognition that, oh, <laughs> the narrative has now become, oh, maybe vaccine hesitancy isn't as big a problem as we thought it was going to be. Uh, there are still these <laughs> articles coming out, not at the same pace or in the same volume, but there are still these articles about black vaccine hesitancy and why black people don't want to take it, which I think is interesting. And I think speaks to the durability um, and the sort of emotional truth of this kind of narrative for a lot of people, that even in the face of evidence that like this doesn't actually reflect how Black people are acting when actually given the opportunity to take the vaccine, it still has a ring of truth to people. So I don't think that that narrative is going to go away. Um, mm. I also think it's just, it's really, it's convenient for like the Larry Hogan's of the world to say, well, you know, I wish more black people would get vaccinated in Maryland, but they don't want to. Right. <laughs> like it's it's a it's a really convenient um, excuse to reach for. And I think um, it's another it's just one example of a general issue in American media of how black communities and black people are presented as a problem, um, as posing a problem to American society. Um, we've been made into a problem with vaccines in a way that other communities have not, um, mm. in the same way that um, black, you know, the lack of fathers in black families or mothers leading black families, um, poverty, education, all the, like, uh, you know, there's that famous quote, how does it feel to be a problem? That's, that's how one of the dominant ways in which blackness is framed in the stories that are told about blackness in this country. So to me, this fact that uh, vaccine hesitancy narrative is another story that we're telling about how black people and black communities mm. are a problem rather than listening to black communities and, and trying to meet the needs of black communities and elevate black communities it we've we become a, a problem that needs to be solved or even a threat um so if we don't i mean the the, the subtext of a lot of this is if we don't reach herd immunity right it might be black people's fault never be, mind right. that we're only 13 percent of the population and even if none of us got vaccinated if everybody else did we'd reach herd immunity right right, right. um you know it's the same way in which black people got uh Blame for Prop 8 in California, you know, uh, 10 plus years ago. The, it's those stories feel true to people. And that's mm -hmm. why they have legs.
just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea time. Please join me tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time when I talk with journalist David Wallace-Wells, the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, and we'll be talking about climate change and the pandemic. And uh, once in a while, this happens, Tope, where um, we have a conversation and it goes on for a while past the hour, and, and it's an index of just how illuminating this has been for me. I've been selfish with your time because I've been learning so much. Thank you so much for this conversation today. Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to discuss this. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m.